Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost my turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. I've got a question for you. How big is hell? If you were to guess at the dimensions of the underworld, what would you say? How would you even start to answer that question? Well, first, we have to start with the assumption that there is such a thing as hell. And for the purposes of our examination, we need that hell to be a Christian hell. So we need to set aside any ideas of hell being a psychological state or Buddhist notions of samsara, where the endless repetition of death and rebirth is perhaps the true definition of suffering. No, no, no. To answer this question, you have to hold in your mind the idea that there is a place where one's eternal soul is banished if, during your life, you commit enough sin— as defined by Christian teaching, and do not properly seek forgiveness and atonement. Okay, so how big would that place be? Or how big would that place be if it was contained underneath the earth? For the purposes of our thought experiment here, hell can't be a boundaryless metaphysical realm that exists in some other dimension created by God. That's cheating. If hell was a place that existed below the crust of our planet, how big would it be? I know, this sounds like an absolutely ridiculous question. A question that could not possibly have an answer. Even those of you listening who are practicing Christians and who believe in the reality of a heaven and a hell, I would guess that most of you don't conceive of these places having finite boundaries. They exist at the pleasure of the Almighty God, right? And yet, for Roman Catholics living in the late 16th century, this was a question that was considered worthy of the best mathematical minds of the day. More than one great thinker from that era puzzled over the dimensions of hell. One of the things that makes this such a challenge is that the Bible is so sparse on detail when it comes to the geography of hell. In the book of Matthew, we're told of, quote, an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, end quote. The revelation of John describes a, quote, burning lake of sulfur, end quote, where sinners are cast alongside the nefarious beast after the last judgment. In a few other spots in the text, a, quote, burning furnace, end quote, is referenced as the fate for unrepentant sinners. But none of these descriptions really give the reader a good sense of how this place is shaped or how big it might be. No, for a truly immersive description of hell, we need to instead turn to the poets. And when you're talking about poems about hell... There is one poet who towers above all the rest, Dante Alighieri. Completed in 1320, Dante's Divine Comedy is an epic three-part masterpiece that takes the reader from the depths of hell up through the mountain of purgatory and on into the spheres of heaven. It's considered one of the greatest works of world literature ever written. There are some who like to point to the writing of the Divine Comedy as the true start of the Italian Renaissance. (laughs) But, as we've explored before on Our Fake History, the Renaissance is a famously slippery concept. But even with all caveats aside, it's hard to exaggerate just how important Dante's Divine Comedy was to the history of Europe, and especially Italy. The fact that Dante composed his epic poem in his native Florentine dialect 
led to that particular dialect gaining prominence as the literary language of the Italian peninsula. Centuries later, when Italy was unified and an official language was chosen, the Florentine dialect became the lingua franca, at least in part, because it was the language in which the Divine Comedy was composed. The language we casually call Italian today is essentially Dante's Italian. The part of the Divine Comedy that remains the most enduring is, of course, part one, the Inferno. Now, it's not like people don't read the other parts, Purgatorio and Paradiso, but there's a chance that unless you've studied this stuff closely, you may not have known that there was a huge part of the Divine Comedy that was all about purgatory. By the same token, if you've heard of Dante at all, then I bet you've heard of Dante's Inferno. In the Inferno, Dante, who is a character in his own poem, is taken through the many rings of hell by his guide, the Roman poet Virgil. Now, unlike the Bible, the Inferno provides a highly specific geography for the underworld. There are nine circles of hell, each of which contains the souls that have been damned for a specific sin. The deeper you are in the Inferno, the worse the sin is that you committed during your life. The first circle is Limbo, where the virtuous but regrettably unbaptized pagans get to hang out. Untortured, but, you know, still in hell. In medieval Christianity, if you died before Jesus was born, well, dems de breaks. Dante tells us that as you descend each circle, you get deeper and deeper into the earth. The ninth and final circle of hell is the circle of the treacherous. The sinners at this level of hell are all traitors of some kind. Those who betrayed their kin, country, benefactors, and friends are imprisoned in a frozen lake called Cocytus, deep in hell's pit. Now, I always found this interesting about Dante's Inferno, that here in the deepest region of hell, it's not hot, but instead freezing cold. At the center of this lake, frozen at the waist, is the devil himself, Lucifer, the morning star, the rebellious angel. The devil is described as having three faces and six enormous wings, Each of Satan's mouths is employed, chewing on one of history's most notorious traitors. The left and right mouths gnaw on Brutus and Cassius, Julius Caesar's famous assassins. The center mouth is employed, eternally chewing up Judas Iscariot, the former disciple that the Gospels tell us betrayed Jesus Christ. As Satan chews these sinners, he cries lamenting his own treachery and rebellion against God. Dante tells us that it's Satan's tears that feed the lake of Cocytus and the endless beating of his six wings that freeze the lake. In Dante's poem, Satan isn't the king of hell, so much as he is the inferno's most famous prisoner and means of torture. When you have an epic poem with descriptions that detailed, well, now you can really start discussing the size and shape of hell. It's also worth noting that the men most concerned with the question of hell's dimensions were overwhelmingly from the northern Italian city-state of Florence, where Dante was a bit of a hometown hero. When they asked, how big is hell, what they meant more specifically was... How big is Dante's hell? Such was the fame of Dante and the esteemed place of the Commedia amongst the literature of the day that for these Florentines, Dante's hell might as well be the real thing. In 1588, an aspiring young academic hoping to make a name for himself took on this puzzle. After spending most of his 20s as a half-hearted medical student, the ambitious young man had finally discovered that his true passion was mathematics. He was now hoping to start a career as a professor in that field. Unfortunately, 
In his years as a student, he had accrued an unflattering reputation. He was known to be mouthy, disrespectful of his professors, quick to question authority, and possessed of an unearned arrogance. If you've ever been in a university lecture, then you may have encountered this kind of guy before. You know, a little pretentious, always got his hand up. He's got more of a comment than a question. Anyway, this particular student studying medicine and mathematics was so annoying that his professors called him the Wrangler. That was because he was always trying to wrangle the conversation back to what he wanted to talk about. But you probably know the Wrangler by his Christian name, Galileo. Well, in 1588, the Wrangler needed a break. You see, despite his annoying classroom persona and his irreverent style, Galileo was clearly brilliant. He just needed the academic establishment to recognize that brilliance. So, when the director of the Academy of Florence gave him the opportunity to solve this well-loved mathematical puzzle and then lecture on his findings, he eagerly took up the challenge. When the time came, the young Galileo finally had a chance to impress some of the most learned men in Florence. And indeed, many gathered to hear the impetuous young academic lecture on the topic at the Palace of the Medicis. Galileo did not disappoint. He began by graciously acknowledging the work of all the august thinkers who had puzzled over this question before him. Then he walked his audience through his method of discovering what was surely the one true solution to the problem. Galileo told his audience that according to Dante, the very center of the earth was at Lucifer's navel, where he was frozen in the lake of Cocytus. If one were to trace a straight line upward from Lucifer's navel to the surface of the earth, they would find the holy city of Jerusalem the axis mundi, or the geographic center of the Earth's surface. Then, Galileo really got into it. Now, I don't want to get lost in the complexities of Galileo's math here, because despite the clarity of his explanation, I am sure to bungle it. But I'll do my best. Basically, Galileo used a close reading of the text to determine the size of a few key figures in hell. For instance, Dante describes a giant in hell named Nimrod. Galileo believed that Nimrod could be used as a useful measuring stick. The poet described Nimrod as having a face the same size as St. Peter's Cone in Rome, that was a giant pinecone sculpture that could be found in one of the Vatican courtyards. Galileo seized on this description because that gave him something that he could measure in real life. Once he established the size of Nimrod's head, he was able to extrapolate through the laws of proportion the size of the entire giant. He determined that Nimrod had to have been 44 arm lengths tall. Then he made an educated guess about the size of Dante. He thought Dante was probably the average height of three arm lengths tall. With those two numbers established, he now had a ratio. Dante is to Nimrod as three is to 44. From there, Galileo argued that there was textual evidence that suggested that the same ratio was true when comparing Nimrod to one of Lucifer's arms. Nimrod is to Lucifer's arm as three is to 44. Following this? He then used that formula to calculate the length of Lucifer's arm. Once he knew the length of Lucifer's arm, he could calculate the devil's entire height. Well, once the size of Satan was established, then the dimensions of the rest of hell could be extrapolated from there. According to Galileo, Satan stood approximately 1,180 meters tall, or 3,870 feet. 
That's about a thousand feet taller than the world's tallest building, <laughs> if you're interested in such things. Based on Galileo's calculations, the dome of hell, or hell's roof, extended over a distance of more than 5,000 kilometers. If you put Jerusalem dead in the center of those 5,000 kilometers, then the easternmost point of Hell's Dome is near Marseille, France, and the westernmost point is near the modern city of Tashkent, Uzbekistan. <laughs> now, what I just gave you was a very quick and incomplete summary of what was a careful series of lectures that combined literary study, theology, and a clear explanation of how mathematics could be applied to this particular problem. The crowd loved these lectures. They were smart, entertaining, and they flattered the sensibilities of all who attended. Turns out the Wrangler really knew how to work a room. The positive reception of his Dante lectures helped Galileo clinch a much sought-after position as the chair of mathematics at the University of Pisa. Now, the irony that Galileo got his start as a professional academic by thoughtfully calculating the dimensions of hell should hopefully not be lost on anyone listening. In this series of lectures, he used mathematics to reinforce and add yet more credibility to an ancient cosmological system, the very system that Galileo would become famous for helping to destroy. Dante's epic poem described the universe as it had been understood by the Greek philosopher Aristotle, his intellectual descendant, the second-century astronomer Ptolemy, and St. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th-century scholastic who fully incorporated this system into mainstream Catholic theology. The Earth was the center of this universe. Hell stretched underground, and Satan's navel sat in the middle of the world. On the far side of the orb was the mountain of purgatory, which stretched upwards towards the heavens. The heavens themselves were made up of a series of perfect crystal spheres, in which the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars were permanently embedded. These spheres revolved in perfect concert, and in doing so created a heavenly music, the so-called Musica Universalis, the music of the spheres perceptible not by the ears, but by the soul. Galileo's lectures on Dante made this vision of the universe appear not only poetic, but downright scientific. And yet, in 1633, exactly 45 years after his triumphant series of lectures on Dante, Galileo would find himself at the mercy of the Inquisition. His crime, according to the Holy Office that tried him, was, quote, heresy, namely of having held and believed a doctrine which is false and contrary to the divine and holy scripture, that the sun is the center of the world and does not move from the east to the west, and the earth moves and is not the center of the world. End quote. Galileo had made observations with his telescope that seemed to confirm that the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus had been correct when many decades earlier he proposed that the earth was not in fact the center of the universe. Instead, the Earth, along with the other planets, orbited the Sun. Galileo had seen proof of this and had said as much in a widely read tract published in 1632. The man who had so eloquently demonstrated the mathematical sense of Dante's hell was now sentenced to house arrest for the rest of his life for demonstrating that the old way of seeing the heavens as perfect crystal spheres was no longer tenable. Galileo's trial has been remembered as a great crime against reason. Galileo himself has been presented as nothing less than a martyr for science. In fact, one 19th century author would even lead off his book titled Martyrs of Science with the story of Galileo. In this version of the Galileo story, the scientist is presented 
as having been unfairly persecuted by church authorities, fearful of the truth of his observations. Worried that their firm grip on the nature of reality was slipping, the intolerant Roman Catholic Church turned on one of the age's great geniuses in a vain attempt to halt the inexorable march forward of scientific progress. But Galileo's martyrdom wasn't for naught. In 1633, he may have lost his battle with the church, but in the end, the scientific revolution that he unleashed won the war. Or so goes the story. But the life, career, trial, and eventual condemnation of Galileo may be more complex than this oft-repeated story would have us believe. Perhaps the very idea that Galileo was a martyr of science is a total misconception. How much have we been getting wrong about one of the most beloved figures of the early modern era? Has the so-called father of modern science been made into a modern myth? Let's find out today on Our Fake History. Episode number 163, What Was the Galileo Affair? Part 1. Hello and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major and this is the podcast where we explore historical myths and try to determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. Before we get going this week, I just want to remind everyone listening that an ad-free version of this show is available through Patreon.com. Just go to Patreon.com slash Our Fake History. If you start supporting at $5 or more every month, you get access to an ad-free feed and every other bit of extra content I currently have on offer. So if that sounds good to you, then please check it out at Patreon.com slash Our Fake History. This week, we are embarking on a new series exploring one of the most famous names in the history of science, Galileo Galilei. Galileo is a figure of such significance in the history of the world that when I was writing this week's episode, I found myself struggling with the best way to introduce him. It can be easy to dip into hyperbole when summarizing his impact on the modern scientific conception of the universe. But at the same time, if you get too coy, you risk underplaying the importance of his discoveries. In the introduction to their 2003 book, Galileo in Rome, biographers William Shea and Mariano Artigas quite bluntly declare, quote, Galileo is the father of modern science and a major figure in the history of mankind. He belongs to the small group of thinkers who transformed Western culture, and his clash with ecclesiastical authorities is one of the most dramatic incidents in the long history of relations between science and religion. End quote. Now, we can quibble over a few things there. But I appreciate that summary because it captures just how large Galileo looms in what we consider quote-unquote Western history. Shea and Artigas are happy to unambiguously call him the father of modern science. Now, I feel obligated to point out that the very idea of modern science is a hotly debated concept among historians and other thinkers. Also, a number of Galileo's contemporaries like Johannes Kepler and Sir Francis Bacon were arguably just as significant in transforming how Europeans did science in the early 17th century. But while those names are well known, especially to students of early modern European history, Galileo has an altogether different level of historical fame. 
This partially has to do with the magnitude of Galileo's discoveries. In 1610, Galileo published his short treatise, Sidereus Nuncius, or The Starry Messenger, where he shared with the world the remarkable observations that he had made with his newly constructed telescope. His careful mapping of the geography of Earth's moon and his discovery of moons orbiting the planet Jupiter did much to upend the old cosmological system that had already been losing credibility for many decades among the most educated Europeans. After Galileo, it became much harder to argue that the Earth was the center of the universe, around which the sun and the planets revolved. Within a few decades, there would be little debate amongst scientists that Galileo had been correct. Even the very church that condemned Galileo as a heretic would eventually accept that the earth revolves around the sun. Arguably, this conflict with the Roman Catholic Church has just as much to do with Galileo's enduring fame as any of his scientific discoveries. You see, as I've been researching this topic, I've come to understand Galileo much in the same way that I understand the Titanic. What do I mean by this? Well, I would argue that the story of Galileo and the story of the Titanic are both excellent examples of modern myths. You might remember that back when I explored the history of the Titanic, I was guided by a phenomenal book by the sociologist Richard Howells that was called The Myth of the Titanic. In that book, he used the term myth in a very specific way that I think is worth bringing up again here. Howells reminds us that in the sociological sense, quote, a myth is not a falsehood. Rather, a myth is a sophisticated social representation, a complex relationship between history, reality, culture, imagination, and identity, end quote. He argues that the mythic version of an event is, quote, frequently a wishfully rewritten history of what ought to have happened rather than what actually did, end quote. That's exactly what I believe has gone on with Galileo. While the myth of the Titanic was supposed to teach lessons about hubris and Edwardian notions of bravery, the Galileo story is often employed to teach lessons about the unstoppable power of human reason, scientific progress, and the irrepressible nature of human curiosity. In this version of the story, Galileo is cast as one of humanity's true geniuses, a genius so great that backwards, superstitious men felt threatened by his greatness. Galileo is persecuted by those who simply cannot understand his carefully proven scientific truths. He's tortured and imprisoned for no crime greater than perceiving the universe as it is. But despite the sufferings of Galileo, he is vindicated by history. Superstition and dogma are ultimately overcome by science and reason. This framing of the Galileo story fits in nicely with what is sometimes called the Whig interpretation of history. Now, we've discussed Whig history before on this show, but it feels especially relevant to this story, so I'm going to give you a bit of a recap here. As you may remember, the term Whig, that is W-H-I-G, is a reference to the British political party of the same name. In his often cited book, The Whig Interpretation of History, the historian Herbert Butterfield used this term to criticize a style of history writing that had been especially popular in Britain during the 19th century. Whig history emphasized the idea of progress, and in particular, scientific and political progress. It was colored by the idea that human society was always steadily progressing away from superstition and towards rationality, 
away from despotism and towards liberal democracy or constitutional monarchy. These ideas were generally associated with the Whig political faction in England, hence Whig history. Butterfield argued that this way of seeing history could compromise a historian because events could be misunderstood as part of an inevitable, quote, line of causation, end quote. In other words, things are believed to have happened because progress towards reason was inevitable. This assumption might make you overlook other evidence that pointed to different causes of an event. Butterfield also accused practitioners of Whig history of presenting a version of history that lacked nuance. Whig history is one where traditionalist villains face off against iconoclastic heroes who champion reason, liberty, and science. Further, Butterfield argued that this has the effect of modernizing the past. The people presented as heroes in Whig history can seem like they exist outside of their historical context in their brave embrace of these very modern values. In Butterfield's estimation, when reading Whig history, the average reader may, quote, find it difficult to keep in mind the differences between the world of the historical figures being examined and our own, end quote. Now, why have I dragged you back through this breakdown of Whig history? Well, I would argue that Galileo is a figure whose story is a favorite of Whig historians. The tale of his discoveries, trial, and ultimate condemnation can quite easily be made into a Whig fairy tale. In fact, one of the clearest examples of Whig history I may have ever come across is David Brewster's 1841 book, Martyrs of Science. I mean, the title basically says it all. In the book, Brewster examines the lives of Galileo and contemporary astronomers Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler. All three men are presented as what Butterfield might call perfect Whig heroes, men who suffered like martyrs for the causes of reason, rationality, and ultimately modernity. This book is ground zero for many of the misconceptions that have come down to us about Galileo. But of course, there's another side to this coin. The life story of Galileo has not only been made into a modern myth by those invested in a Whig interpretation of history, it's also been of interest to Roman Catholic authors. Over the centuries, the trial and condemnation of Galileo has become a bit of an embarrassment for the Church of Rome, especially as Galileo has been elevated to the level of secular saint by his admirers. This has meant that those interested in creating apologias for the conduct of the Church have also taken on the project of writing the story of Galileo. This means that there's an entirely different understanding of Galileo out there colored by a set of religious biases, or perhaps an instinct to defend the Roman Catholic Church. All of this means that Galileo is the perfect subject for our fake history. Now, despite the fact that Galileo's life has been the subject of some serious mythologizing, many historians have worked hard to give us a more balanced and ultimately more accurate understanding of who Galileo was, what he discovered, why he was tried for heresy, and what all this meant for the history of Europe. So, let's dive into the life of Galileo and see what we can figure out.
Galileo Galilei was born in 1564 in the northern Italian city of Pisa. At the time, Pisa was part of the regional empire centered on Florence. By the time of Galileo's birth, the days of the storied Florentine Republic were firmly in the past. The powerful Medici family had reasserted their control over the city and had essentially turned it into a hereditary monarchy. These were the very princes that our old buddy Niccolo Machiavelli had tried to ingratiate himself with when he wrote The Prince some 30 years before Galileo's birth. When Galileo was five, the Pope granted the Medici ruler the title of Grand Duke of Tuscany, a title they would hold until 1737. Galileo's Pisa was essentially the playground of the Medicis, who kept a large palace that they treated as a retreat in the comparatively quaint city. I bring this up because while Galileo was not technically born in Florence, he considered himself to be a Florentine and part of the long and storied cultural and artistic tradition of that city. Galileo came from a family with aristocratic roots. His mother, Giulia Amianati, came from a minor Tuscan noble family who proudly counted a secretary to Pope Pius II as one of their ancestors. Galileo's father, Vincenzo Galilei, was a well-known musician who had enough of a profile that he was considered a reasonable match for the admittedly higher-class Giulia. Now, when I say that Galileo's family was aristocratic, you really shouldn't think rich. The family certainly enjoyed the privilege and status that came with having noble blood. However, they seem to have been perpetually strapped for cash. This was despite some success that Vincenzo had in the wool trade and his ever-growing profile as one of Northern Italy's most inventive working musicians. You see, on top of being Galileo's father, Vincenzo was famous in his own right. Not only was he a virtuoso lute player, but his original compositions gained attention for their novel approach to music. He bucked against the prevailing trends at the time, and with a group of friends and collaborators, sought to create a new style of music that combined modern musical theory with the ancient Greek ideal of what constituted beautiful music. Vincenzo and his group of like-minded musicians were particularly interested in combining theater with music. Their early experiments would, in a few generations, be developed into what we now know as opera. (laughs) Just like Iggy and the Stooges were playing punk before anyone called it punk, Vincenzo was doing the same thing with opera. So yeah, Galileo's dad was the Iggy Pop of opera. Galileo biographers like James Reston Jr. have pointed out that Vincenzo's rebellious spirit and willingness to buck trends and experiment with his art seems to have rubbed off on the young Galileo. It is true that from a young age, Galileo exhibited few scruples when it came to questioning received orthodoxies. Was this a value instilled in him by his father? Well, it's hard to know. You see, when Galileo was 11, he was sent to be educated at the Villambroso Abbey, a notoriously strict and austere Benedictine monastery. So, despite Vincenzo's reputation as a rebel, he made a fairly conservative choice when it came to the education of his son. Interestingly, the young Galileo seems to have taken to life at the Abbey. At 15, he even went so far as to take the oaths of a novice, the first step towards becoming a Benedictine monk. (laughs) Now, I thought that this was a super interesting historical what if. What if Galileo had become a monk? You could argue that the next few hundred years of European history may have played out quite differently. This is also notable because the Galileo affair, as the later trial and conviction of Galileo would become known, 
is often characterized as the ultimate showdown between science and religion. I think it's worth remembering that Galileo, who often gets presented as a stand-in for science itself, was deeply religious. He was very nearly a Benedictine monk. Similarly, many of the churchmen who would sit in judgment of Galileo were surprisingly scientifically minded, including the Pope who would condemn him. But (laughs) I'm getting way ahead of myself here, so let's go back. Before Galileo got too deep into his career as a monk, his father pulled him out of the monastery. This meant that Galileo technically broke his oath, which led to him being formally defrocked as a teenager. Apparently, Vincenzo was worried that if his eldest son became a monk, he would doom his family's financial future. He needed a son who could earn, and there wasn't a lot of money in being a monk. Or rather, any money made by the monks stayed within the monastery. So Vincenzo tried to get his son interested in the wool trade, but he soon realized that the bright young man was better suited for a career in something that was a bit more intellectually stimulating. So he encouraged his son to enroll at Pisa University and study medicine. Not only was there some cachet in being a physician, even in the late 1500s, but more importantly, it was a job that paid. By all accounts, Galileo was a brilliant but uninspired medical student. Despite his talent, he soon gained a reputation for skipping class. When he was in class, he was infamous for annoying his professors. As I mentioned in the introduction, it was during his years as a medical student at Pisa that he earned the nickname The Wrangler. <laughs> now, I, I really don't want to fall into the trap that Herbert Butterfield tells us to avoid, and that is modernizing the past. But if you'll indulge me, when I learned that Galileo was nicknamed The Wrangler as a university student, his whole story really cracked open for me because I was like, oh, I know this guy. I remember being around a a wrangler or two in my university days. As I learned more about Galileo's life story, I found it made the most sense when I kept in mind that he was the wrangler, a brilliant but annoying enfant terrible who never missed an opportunity to show off or squeeze the most advantage he could out of a situation. He's one part lovable scamp, one part arrogant pill. Except, his arrogance wasn't entirely unearned, given his very real genius. Even though Galileo showed little interest in his medical studies, Pisa University ultimately proved to be a stimulating environment for the young man. Things really started to click for Galileo when he was introduced to Ostilio Ricci. Ricci was the court mathematician for the Medicis, and every year the entire court would move from Florence to Pisa between Christmas and Easter. While Ricci was in Pisa, Galileo started to attend the lectures that the mathematician gave to the court pages. By all accounts, Galileo was riveted and Ricci took notice. Galileo soon proved to Ricci that he had a deep passion and a fantastic aptitude for math. So, Ricci agreed to start tutoring him. After working with Galileo for a number of months, Ricci reached out to Galileo's father to see if the old man would consent to his son switching majors and pursuing mathematics. Now, Vincenzo didn't really want Galileo studying pure mathematics because it didn't seem like it was going to lead to a good-paying job. Doctors got paid. Who even knew what mathematicians did? But Vincenzo deeply respected Ricci and was convinced that he should allow Galileo to follow his passion and pursue his studies in math. 
It helped that Ricci assured Vincenzo that he would personally oversee the education of his strong-willed son. This is when Galileo really came into his own as a young academic. Now, this brings us to one of the most repeated legends about Galileo during his university years. The story goes that in 1583, when Galileo was only 18 years old, he was attending Mass at Pisa's Grand Cathedral. Now, this cathedral already had all sorts of lore associated with it. It was said to have been originally constructed using stones pilfered from the ruins of the Roman Emperor Hadrian's old palace. The cathedral had also been blessed with soil brought back from Jerusalem by Pisan crusaders. But young Galileo was about to add to that lore. We're told that while sitting in the pews, something caught the young man's eye. It was the huge oil lamp that hung down from the central nave of the church on a long wire. The lamp was swaying in the breeze, and Galileo couldn't help but notice just how regular and predictable the swinging of the lamp was. It was so predictable, in fact, that he started to time it using his own pulse. Feeling his pulse, he counted how many times his heart would beat between each swing of the lamp. This was a eureka moment. We're told that as soon as he'd taken communion, he rushed out of the cathedral and back to his cousin's house in Pisa. There, he set up a whole series of weights on strings and started to experiment with how the length of the string would affect how fast or slow the pendulum would swing. From this, he was able to devise a hypothesis about how pendulums could be used to measure small increments of time. Specifically, a pendulum could be used to measure the regularity of a heartbeat, just as he had done with the lamp in the cathedral. This led to Galileo's first invention, or rather, the first invention stolen from Galileo. You see, we're told that after carefully recording his observations of swinging pendulums and noting their application for physicians, he took his findings to his professors. Now, we're told that they were quite impressed, the Wrangler had actually come up with something useful. The men of the medical faculty patted their student on the back and then promptly stole his idea. Soon, all of Italy would be introduced to a new physician's tool, the Pusologia. It was a simple but effective device that used a pendulum to time a patient's heartbeat. The new invention was credited to the brilliant medical faculty at the University of Pisa. Aside from some kudos from his professors, Galileo received no credit for the new device. Okay, so is there any truth to this story? Well, it is very true that Galileo conducted experiments with pendulums and recommended their use in timekeeping. But what isn't clear is when he conducted those particular experiments. The biographer James Reston Jr. is happy to give him credit for making the breakthrough that made the Pusologia possible. But other historians aren't so sure. Almost everyone is skeptical about the lamp story. This is primarily because the lamp that Galileo was supposed to have been watching swing back and forth in 1583, which still hangs in the cathedral, by the way, was cast and installed in the cathedral in 1587. By that point, Galileo's student days were over. Now, it's possible that Galileo did observe swinging lamps while at mass, just not that particular swinging lamp, but it seems more likely that the whole story was concocted by Galileo's early biographers to help burnish his myth. 
Now, I know this seems like a really inconsequential legend. Like, What does it matter if he saw a lamp swinging or not? But Canadian writer Wade Rowland has made the point that this tale contains many of the key elements of the Galileo myth and can even be used to foreshadow his later conflict with the church. Rowland writes, quote, The story, as it's usually told, is a thinly veiled allegory for the superiority of the scientific mind. While the rest of the congregation wasted their time on the protocols of religion, Galileo's scientific mind was alert to the truth. End quote. It's an interesting point. The story suggests that even in church, where one should be absorbing the teachings from the pulpit, Galileo just couldn't help but see the truth of science. This helps build the myth that somehow Galileo was the living embodiment of science itself. I would also argue the fact that this story seems to echo the Eureka moment of the famous Archimedes is a little suspect. Galileo was a great admirer of the ancient mathematician. And it's quite possible that his early biographers sought to draw connections between the two of them. But that's just a hunch I have. So please take that with the appropriate helping of salt. Nevertheless, it's clear that after a few years at Pisa, the faculty had begun to recognize that the Wrangler, their most annoying student, might actually have some real talent. Whether or not he was behind the Pusologia, no one could deny the provenance of his second significant invention. This was a small hydrostatic balance, a device that could be used to accurately measure the density of fluids. He even published a treatise explaining how it functioned, called simply the small balance. This was the device that really got him the attention of the scientific community. And yet, the small balance isn't remembered nearly as well as his pendulum discoveries. I would guess because there isn't a fun legend attached to the discovery of the hydrostatic balance. Now, all of this eventually led to the opportunity to lecture on Dante, which in turn set Galileo up for his first teaching job. In 1589, Galileo the medical school dropout, was appointed to the chair of mathematics at Pisa University. He would ultimately spend only three years at Pisa as a teacher, but not before another key legend about the young Galileo and Pisa's famous leaning tower could be formed. So let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get into that memorable legend. Over the course of this podcast, I've collected a fairly substantial list of times and places that I wish I could visit with a time machine. You know, pure fantasy stuff where I get to see something or experience something without completely disrupting our timeline, destroying the space-time continuum, or watching myself slowly fade out of a Polaroid picture of my family. I've shared with you my daydream of watching the Spanish conquistadors enter Tenochtitlan for the first time. Last season, I really got into the idea of bar hopping through Paris in a personal dirigible with Alberto Santos Dumont. Well, let me add another one to the list. If I could travel through time and also magically be given a working knowledge of the 16th century Florentine dialect, 
I think I would really like to go to one of Galileo's lectures. By all accounts, Galileo was a truly excellent university lecturer. He made complex ideas clear and understandable. But perhaps more importantly, the guy had style. As a student, he had grown to hate the turgid and uninspired style of his professors, hence all the wrangling. So, as a teacher, he was determined to make his lectures a bit more engaging. Indeed, anyone that heard him speak always noted how witty and downright funny he was in his lectures. This partially had to do with the way that he presented himself, which was irreverent to the core. As a young man, Galileo had a shock of red hair and a big red beard, which already made him stand out a bit. But his choice of clothes also seemed to be intentionally provocative. You see, in the late 16th century at Italian universities, it was common for professors to wear togas. This was done in a nod to the ancient Greek and Roman scholars that they hoped to emulate. Now, not anyone could wear a toga. You had to be a professor. So it was a real sign of dignity and intellectual achievement to go around wearing one. But Galileo hated the toga. It bothered him that men he considered to be his intellectual inferiors could stroll around town all togaed up, and the average passerby would think that this person was some great genius. Galileo had no time for these kinds of pretensions. He called the toga, quote, the disguise of the empty-headed, end quote. Apparently, during one of his lectures, Galileo told his students, quote, if you wear a toga, you have to follow certain rules. You can't go to a brothel, for example, because the dignity of the professor's gown would not allow it, end quote. <laughs> I mean, you gotta love that. I would never wear a toga. It gets in the way of my brothel going. So Galileo dressed more casually, or the 16th century version of upper class casual, which by today's standards would still seem incredibly ornate. But at the time, he was like the professor who would roll into class with bedhead, a cool vintage leather jacket, and would let it slip that he was kind of hungover. But it's possible that Galileo's personal style and reputation for showmanship may have contributed to the other best-known story about him from his days at Pisa University. The story goes that in the course of his mathematical studies, Galileo eventually became skeptical of Aristotle's assertion that objects of different weights should fall at different speeds. In one of his works on physics, the ancient philosopher had proclaimed that if two objects were dropped from the same height, the heavier of the two would hit the ground first. Galileo suspected that this was false. But at the time, Aristotle was still such an influence on everything from physics to botany to cosmology that his conclusions were given precedence. Now, <laughs> if you listen to the podcast The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong by my man Mark Chrysler, who <laughs> referred to this podcast as his brother podcast from another oblast, and uh, man, I appreciated that. Anyway, if you're listening to The Constant, then you know that Mark has this ongoing battle with Aristotle, because Aristotle's conclusions led to so many wrong-headed moments in the history of science. He swears on his show, which I'm a little jealous of, but he calls Aristotle just effing Aristotle. Anyway, Galileo, it's said, devised a very public experiment to both wow his students and shame those colleagues who stubbornly clung to their Aristotle. The experiment was simple. Galileo climbed to the top of Pisa's most iconic structure, the beloved Leaning Tower of Pisa, which even then had a lean to it. 
Once at the top of the tower, he produced two large iron balls. In some versions of the story, we're told that they are cannonballs. One of the balls was noticeably larger and heavier than the other. If Aristotle was right, then the larger object should hit the ground quite a lot sooner than the smaller and lighter object. The gathered crowd waited with bated breath, and when Galileo felt like the moment was right, he dropped the two balls. Sure enough, both balls hit the earth at what seemed like exactly the same moment. From the top of the leaning tower of Pisa, Galileo had dethroned Aristotle and was now the true master of physics. Or, so goes the tale. This story has become beloved in the history of science. In fact, Apollo 15 astronaut David Scott even repeated the experiment while on the surface of the moon with a feather and a hammer. He was able to show that in the vacuum conditions of the moon's surface, even a feather and a hammer will fall at the same rate. There's a video of it. It's very cool, and you should totally check it out. But here's the thing. There is no contemporary evidence that this experiment ever actually took place. Galileo wrote nothing about it at the time, nor did anyone else in Pisa. The story first appears in the first ever biography of Galileo, written by one Vincenzo Viviani. Viviani would claim that he knew about this story because Galileo had related it to him later in life. But many modern historians are skeptical of his provenance. Viviani worshipped Galileo, and his biography is so glowing that some have called it a hagiography, a saint's life story. It's not beyond Viviani to spice things up with a compelling legend. You see, Galileo would eventually write extensively about the physics demonstrated by this experiment. He was very interested in the dynamics of falling bodies. In his writing, he refuted the Aristotelian idea that heavier objects fall faster than lighter ones. In his book, On Motion, Galileo created a hypothetical situation where two balls of different weights were dropped from a tower. He asks his reader in that book to do a thought experiment. Can you really imagine a smaller iron ball hitting the ground several seconds after a larger one? Some biographers like Stillman Drake and James Reston Jr. have suggested that the passage in On Motion may have been inspired by a real experiment that he did. Maybe he did that at the top of the Leaning Tower. But others have argued that the opposite is true. Galileo came up with a compelling thought experiment in his writing, and Viviani then turned it into an entertaining story that he claimed really happened. The fact that there are no records from between 1589 and 1592, when Galileo was a professor at Pisa, that mention this experiment taking place really make it seem like a myth. Part of the reason that this story has been so sticky has to do in part with the iconic setting. The Leaning Tower of Pisa is just a great backdrop. But also, the story helps reinforce the Galileo myth because it involves conducting a very public experiment at a time when the modern scientific experiment was still being codified in Europe. In this story, the great Galileo is not only demonstrating a law of physics, he's also demonstrating how to do a scientific experiment. For those that want to see Galileo as the living embodiment of science, this story helps reinforce that image. But whether or not Galileo wowed a crowd by dropping balls from the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it's clear that by 1592, his reputation had grown. He was now ready to leave behind his hometown university in Pisa and make a play for the chair of mathematics 
at one of the most prestigious universities in all of Europe, the University of Padua. It was there, in Padua, the university town governed by the Serene Republic of Venice, that Galileo would really make a name for himself. Before he left that school, the Wrangler would be the best-known scientist in all of Europe. Okay, that's all for this week. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will continue our series on Galileo. Before we go this week, I need to give a shout-out to the following people. Big ups to Putter Clayman, to Josh Cornelius, to Richard Izzo, to Tom Dupree, to John McGeehan, to Jason Osborne, to Bob Woodington, to Kristen Klein-Lehman, to Matthew Goldenberg, to Maynard Linder, to Tanner McCleave, to Matthew Walson, to John Andre Sather, and to John Bryan. All of these people have decided to pledge at $5 or more every month on Patreon, so you know what that means. They're beautiful human beings. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. It means everything. I really hope you're enjoying all the extras. Uh, If you're a patron, you can always reach out to me through the uh, Patreon website. I'm always keeping an eye on, on what's coming through from the patrons. Everyone else out there, you can always hit me up through my email address. That's ourfakehistory at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash ourfakehistory. You can find me on Twitter at ourfakehistory. And you can find me on Instagram at ourfakehistory. The theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. Check out more from Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. And all the other music you heard on the show today was written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major, and remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. 